Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 166, and today's guest is Rich Kirby, co-founder and general partner of Equal Ventures. It's no secret that diversity is an issue in the tech industry, but it is an even bigger issue when you look at the venture capital industry. Rich has conducted a lot of research on this topic, and based on his last report, only 2% of African Americans were represented as investors in the VC industry. Well, Rich is the type who takes action. By publishing his findings, which have been featured on TechCrunch, his personal blog, and in many other interviews, it helps to bring awareness to this key issue. In addition, Rich is also the founder of Stealth Mode, a community of more than 1,500 African American founders, operators, and investors. After spending time in the VC industry at IVP and Venrock, Rich is now a co-founder and general partner at a new firm called Equal Ventures, which recently announced a $56 million first fund. The firm is focused on bridging the digital divide by investing in founders who are transforming legacy markets in industries like insurance, retail, supply chain, and the care economy. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Rich's early career in investment banking and how he landed in the venture capital industry, which involved a lot of cold emailing to partners at firms, all the details on Equal Ventures in terms of the firm's thesis and the stage of investments they are focused on, what an investor is looking to get out of a first meeting, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you're listening to this podcast, then it is very likely that you are interested in the founder journey and the lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure that you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rich. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, a new fund that you and your your partner have recently launched, uh, Equal Ventures, which is super interesting and exciting what you guys are, are doing and your thesis behind the firm. Um, but what I want to kick things off with is a very meaningful topic. Uh, you know, people are aware that, you know, um, you know, the tech industry has its challenges around diversity. But when you take even a step deeper around the firms that are funding a lot of these tech startups, uh, the diversity issue is even more staggering. I mean, so you've done a lot of research and you compiled data that's been published out there to show, um, you know, especially when you, not just, you know, uh, diversity around um, gender, but, you know, race. So African-Americans, mm-hmm. you know, the, there, I think you said there was, you evaluated 200 firms of which 1.5% had that representation. And then fast forward, it was three years later, you, kind of refresh your research and it only moved the needle from 1.5 to 2%. Uh, so anyways, I want to talk to you about that. Like, like, you know, it's been almost two years now, maybe a year and a half since you did that kind of refresh. Um, are we making progress? Yeah. Yeah. Keith, I think it's uh, we are making progress. Um, I'd say progress is not happening at the rate that, you know, people would like me in particular. And so I think on the progress side, what we've seen is that, um, there have been more African-Americans hired in the junior ranks of venture funds. So when you look at the principal level and associate level, we're seeing more and more African-American male and female um, you know, employees there, which is great because that tends to be a great pipeline for you know, future general partners and partners at those firms, which is fantastic. I think the second layer we've seen progress is uh, maybe folks like myself who've gone and said, you know what, I'm going to start my new, my own fund. And I think it's important to do both levers. You know, one, 
infiltrate the kind of legacy venture funds, but also create new funds. Because when you look at a venture capital firm, you know, the average venture capital firm hires zero people per year. Um, it's a very small industry. Um, it, you don't really require big bulky teams. And so if you're not hiring people at your firm, the ability for you to improve their lack of diversity at your firm is going to be quite stagnant. And so it's important to try and uh, hit both those levers. Now, I think both those two things are happening, but you know, I'd say they're still at a, uh, a glacial pace and we'd like to figure out a way to help speed some of those things up. And there are some you know, great um, you know, individuals and programs working on some of those things too as well. And so when you look at um, a program like HBCUBC, which is uh, run by Hadia Mujib, she effectively has a fellowship program where they go to HBCUs across the country and um, you know, basically have a kind of leadership program that educates you know students on what venture capital is, why it can be an interesting career path, why you should think about it as an undergrad and not wait till later in your career. And that's a fantastic program. And then um, one of our individual investors actually is a fellow named Malcolm Robinson, who has a program where he also goes to HBCUs, um, educates students on what venture capital is, and then has a internship program where you know, uh, students can apply. And then um, you, I think he takes roughly call it 10 students per summer and places them as interns at venture funds. So you can be an undergraduate at an HBCU and actually get an internship at a, you know, an established venture fund, which is you know, a pretty interesting opportunity for you know, a 20 or 21 year old. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, I mean, just that, that's so true though. It's like, I mean, coming out of undergrad, I had no idea the world of venture capital existed. You know, it wasn't until probably you know several years later that I'm like, oh, there's a whole industry that's funding these tech companies. So, um, so it's good that just awareness that that's a career path for for anyone to follow. And the, the other important statistic that I thought was interesting from your data was, forty um, percent of investors were graduates of, of Stanford and Harvard too. Which you know, that's again another, you know, part of the challenge. <laughs> Yeah, I think that we think about uh, diversity here at Equal, it's not just about, you know, gender and race. It's just, we call it cognitive diversity. And so gender race is super important. You add on, you know, educational backgrounds, uh, career differences, career experiences, and just life experiences. And if you're, uh, you know, picking from the same two pools of people, the chances that you can get that cognitive diversity, it, it becomes quite challenging. And so when we think about building out our team here at Equal, you know, we're trying to find as many folks that are as different from us as possible because we think that's the best way to kind of, one, um, see new opportunities, but two, more importantly, have different voices and opinions that will help us push us to make hopefully the right choices. And you're also the founder of Stealth Mode, which is an initiative that is, you know, mm-hmm. helping to, you know, promote more uh, diversity, especially African Americans in in the tech industry. Correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Stealth Mode is an offline online community um, for African Americans in tech. And so now we've got two chapters: the Bay Area and New York. Um, and across those chapters, we have roughly fifteen hundred people who are you know, African-American entrepreneurs, operators, you know, heads of BD, legal teams, engineers, product managers, et cetera. Um, you know, any um, functional area of a tech company that you know, kind of well covered. And it's a great way for people to do uh, a variety of things from hiring to raising capital to just venting about you know, frustrations at work. Uh, and, and so um, it's great to have like, this kind of closed community where folks can um, you know, have a dialogue online, but also take that dialogue offline to our you know, offline events or just you know, meet people within the community themselves. And so it, it's been great to kind of see it grow over time. Um, and, um, you know, we're still thinking about ways in which we can make it more scalable as well, though. Very cool. Well, congratulations on, you know, taking action too. It's one thing to publish the data and bring awareness. That's, you know, part of, you know, building awareness is important, yeah. but, you know, following through with the action piece is uh, extraordinary. So, uh, well, let's rewind the clock. Let's uh, talk about, you know, wh- where'd you grow up? What were you like as a, as a child? 
Yeah, sure. So I uh, grew up in New York uh, most of my life, just different parts of New York. So was born in Manhattan at Mount Sinai Hospital um, in East Harlem. I actually live, I think it's like six blocks in the hospital right now. So I've gone very far in life, effectively. But, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a early child, they were called like toddler years, we're in Queens around like the left rack city area of, uh, of Queens. And then um, uh, moved to Spring Valley in New York, which is roughly called 25 minutes outside the city. And then eventually moved to Newburgh, New York, which is probably like an hour and 10 minutes outside the city where I went to high school. I think I moved there in eighth or ninth grade. Um, yeah, as a kid, you know, probably like any uh, typical teenage boy, you know, like playing sports and like playing video games. And so that revolved a, a lot of my, my thoughts and, and career. And, and when I was, you know, probably a, I don't know, maybe a teenager called sophomore, junior high school, I was fascinated by video games. And, you know, my original thought, my career path was I wanted to go build those video games. And, and so um, that did not end up happening, um, but that was the original thought process in my head as a, you know, 16 or 17 year old. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, that, that, <laughs> I remember I, I used, my first computer was a Texas Instruments TI 99.4A. And I took same thing. I wanted to build video games. Like I wasn't, I probably didn't have the, uh, the know-how to actually code from scratch, but I would buy the books mm -hmm and or get them from the library and actually you know copy the the code into the, my texas instrument to run you know a video game which was uh which was a lot of fun now you went on to georgetown to study economics and government so what were you thinking there as far as you know the, the next evolution of your career path yeah no it's, it's funny so when i was uh in high school my high school had a one computer science course and so i, I signed up for it and then um you know i think like two days later they send like your preliminary schedule home and then my dad saw it and my dad's from Haiti originally. And in Haiti, the only people who you know, make great income are lawyers and doctors. And so in his mind, he was thinking, what's this computer science thing? It's not really relevant to having great income later in life. And so I was like, you know, my dad's a smart guy. He's probably right. So I'm just going to kick this thing to the curb for a little bit. And at the time, my dad was working um, at the United Nations. And so, um, you know, in the kind of international uh, relations side of the kind of career path, I thought, you know, his job seems pretty cool. He seems like a smart guy. Let me try and think about that path. And so what I was thinking through there was, you know, maybe, you know, a career in politics or international relations was actually the career path that I wanted to go, go pursue. And I thought Georgetown was the best place to go do that. So I went to Georgetown, started studying government. And then I was probably halfway through my major when I realized, man, I do not like government. Um, and, and for me, it was just the kind of uh, juxtaposition versus technology. So, you know, being focused on video games, you're seeing rapid change, whether it's graphics or the speed of play or the performance of the game. And then when you look at the government, I saw no change. Uh, policy was being discussed, nothing was being enacted, and, and even you know, a, the president, Congress, and Senate effectively couldn't really enact any change. And so that like, slow pace of change really um, made me disenfranchised with the process and, and thought process of working in government. And so I thought, you know what, this is probably not gonna be the career path for me, but then day I already had finished half the major, so I figured, hey, let's just you know, wrap that up. So what'd you end up doing after undergrad? Yeah, so after undergrad, I ended up uh, joining Credit Suisse uh, in, in their investment banking group there. Uh, and so I did investment banking for two years there in their industrials group. And so a lot of um, you know, unsexy industries from paper mills to steel to business services to water companies. And so um, not what we think about traditionally when we think about venture capital, but that's where I, I started off my career. So what did that experience teach you? Like, you know, coming out of undergrad, investment banking, you know, that's rigorous right long hours mm -hmm. right so so what, what did that experience teach you yeah i think what i learned most there was just you know um how to just grind and, and work hard um you know long hours having to put on long hours after that 
was super easy. And, and so, you know, I think just being able to see the sheer uh, need to kind of just like be a workhorse. And then also thinking through, um, you know, attention to detail is quite important in, in a big focus area there. And then also thinking through how to think about, you know, financial modeling, which, um, you know, I think most early stage startups don't think about or focus on. And if you can provide some guidance there, it can be quite helpful. But I think those are the two things I learned there career path wise. And the second piece I'd say, the third piece was that I um, realized that I didn't like um, investment banking. I think that was an important thing to learn there, which was, um, you know, working with these really large public companies was, you know, fascinating, but not really a thing that I was excited by. And so, you know, after your first year in banking is when most folks start to recruit for their next job. Um, that generally, that general path is private equity or hedge fund where you go do the same work but make more income. And I thought, okay, more income sounds great, but doing what I'm doing now is not sounding so great. And so um, I knew I was passionate about technology. I was passionate about investing. At the time, investing for me was kind of just in the personal account in public markets. So I thought, how do I marry those two disciplines? And, you know, I went online, did some Googling. I figured out, okay, venture capital seems like the best nexus to those, to achieve those two goals there. And so at that point in time, I, I uh, was always keeping track of who was raising capital from, um, you know, whatever venture fund. And so whenever I saw a company I thought was particularly interesting to raise capital, I tried to figure out who that partner at that firm was that led that deal, shoot him or her an email and say, hey, I, I saw you invested in, you know, ABC company. I love to discuss the rationale behind the investment. And so I did two things there. One was I used my Credit Suisse email. So it looked like an investment banker was in with them, not some random guy. And then um, the second thing is I didn't ask for a job. I just wanted to learn. And as you'd imagine, uh, most of those emails went unanswered. Um, probably, you know, a dozen of them came back saying, we don't talk about our investments, which is fine. And maybe a handful wrote back and said, hey, happy to chat 15 or 20 minutes. And one of those emails was from a firm called IDP, Institutional Venture Partners, which ended up hiring me a couple months later. And so that was my first foray into venture capital. So, so talk about that conversation then. So how did that lead you into getting a position at IVP? Yeah, so um, what happened there was, you know, that first conversation probably 15 or 20 minutes where um, they were just talking about, you know, what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. It actually didn't, we actually never even discussed the company I actually reached out about. Um, and then at the end of that conversation, um, you know, I had learned a lot about, or I should say I spent a lot of time researching the internet industry. And so they could realize that I had a pretty good pulse on what was happening in their market. And they said, hey, we're actually going to hire somebody. Um, and so shoot me a resume. We'll just see what happens. And so I sent my resume after that phone call. And then, you know, uh, several interviews later, I, I was, uh, you know, got an offer to run the firm. So you, I, I recently had um, Claire Fakour, if I'm pronouncing her last name yet, I always like struggle yeah, with that Yeah, she one. was in my investment banking analyst class. Oh, no way. Yeah. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Simple, like she didn't go to you know HBS, right, or you know Stanford yeah. MBA. She cold called and worked her way into venture, similar to what you did. You just took the initiative, learned the industry, made contacts, made connections that led to getting into the industry. It's awesome. Well, let's talk about your time at IVP. So, you, um, like, so what stage of investment investment were they making? And then, you know, what were some of the companies sure. that you were involved in? Yeah, so at IVP, you know, when I was there, we were making investments in the size of called 25 to 50 million dollars check sizes. And so later stage companies, at the time, that was probably like a series C of a company. Um, now, uh, you know, the IVP's fund is much larger. They're writing checks on the low end, probably 50 million dollars now, probably up to 100 in, in that sense. So I guess those guys these days. And, um, you know, that round may be a series B now, as, as rounds have gotten larger at, at an earlier stage. 
Uh, but yeah, when I was there, you know, I was fortunate enough to work at our investments in companies like Dropbox, Shazam, PopSugar, and Yext, to name a few of them. Yeah, and so so like a company like Dropbox, like what, I mean, you, you're just in the world of venture. Like what were you able to get exposed to with, you know, companies that were, you know, going through this just massive growth, you know, time periods to the point of they did eventually go public? You know, it, it's pretty interesting when, because, um, you know, at, at the IVP stage, these companies aren't brand new, right? So they've typically been around for several years. Um, you know, they probably built some sort of brand equity or brand name that, you know, makes them a, not a household name to most people in the country, but a household name to everyone in tech. And so Dropbox was definitely one of those when we kind of invested. And I originally came across the company when um, my friend, um, Aston Motes, was the very first hire at the company. And so uh, I remember when he, when I, we were first jammed on Dropbox, he was like, hey, you think this could be a billion dollar company? I was like, no chance. Um, and, and then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, we were investing at a, at a valuation definitely north of there. And so um, it's fantastic to see, you know, a, a friend have great success like that at a company early on and also have an inside view on how things are being built in, in, those, in these large companies. Yeah. And then what brought you to uh, Venrock from there? Yeah. So when I was at MVP, you know, I, I realized that was my first taste of venture. And, you know, for me, it was a test case. Do I want to do it in the first place? And, mm-hmm. you know, there is where I learned that I um, really, really enjoyed venture capital. I wasn't as enamored with later stage. I wanted to kind of find a way to be much more helpful to founders, work with companies that were much more nascent. And so I thought, you know, going earlier stage was probably the best path for me to do so. And so um, Venrock focuses mostly on Series A investing. And so, you know, quite different from where I was at IVP. There's a lot less there in the company um, and the founders still need a lot more help to kind of figure out how to kind of reach product market fit and also scale their businesses. And so it was fun to kind of, you know, join the Venrock team. I spent nearly five years there before uh, co-founding Equal with Rick. And it seemed like you had a niche more on like, you know, marketing oriented applications. Uh, you know, one company that uh, I'm really familiar with is, is Salsify, which is a company in Boston mm-hmm. that's you know done tremendously yeah. well. Yeah, no, so we, we um, you know, I'd say at, at Benrock, we were all generalists uh, in the tech team. And so um, worked in a variety of companies, obviously in the marketing sphere, there were companies like Salsify. Um, you can think about the sales sphere, Six Sense is another one we worked on very early on, actually was a, initially a seed investment that we made in the company. And then there was, you know, things in the consumer side. So things like, you know, apps, which is, uh, you know, kind of a mobile social community that we worked on with the folks over at USB. And we also um, invested in uh, Lux Valley while I was there, which didn't work out, but, you know, was in the kind of mobile transportation space. So a variety of industries we kind of focused on there at, Ivy, at, at sorry, Benrock. And it was, you know, really interesting to be able to learn from founders who are living this day in, day out across a variety of sectors. So, so over that you know, time at IVP and Benrock, um, what do you think you developed to the point where you're like, OK, you know, I can, I'm ready to start my own fund? Yeah, I think. I think um, uh, I'd say probably uh, most the junior investors are probably overconfident on when they can do so in the first place. Um, you know, I think everyone thinks that they're always ready to go start their own fund, lead their own investment, and so forth uh, until they have to go do it themselves. And you realize, you know, how challenging you know doing those things actually are. But I think you know, for for Rick and I, what really got us um, connected was one, figuring out that we thought the two of us could work really well together, and then two, thinking through a strategy that we thought was unique to what we saw in the market. And I think. Um, you know, when you can come up with a strategy that you get really excited by and you think is differentiated and unique, that can help mask some of those fears of going out on your own, taking a lot of risk and, and kind of worrying about failing. All right. Well, let's talk about Equal Ventures then. So you recently announced the firm. Uh, obviously, the announcement is one thing, but you've, you've, you know, obviously you had to, you know, raise capital from LPs and you've already made some investments. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, let's talk about equal, equal ventures. Like what, what are you guys focused on? Yeah. So at equal, um, you know, we're focused on the seed stage from a you know stage perspective. And so for us, that means generally around size that are anywhere from two to $4 million. Our check size on average is about a million and a half of those rounds. And so, you know, definitely a meaningful amount of the round, which is also why we generally are taking board seats and being very hands-on with our founders. And so uh, we really enjoy spending as much as possible with our founders because, you know, at the end of the day, the founder has lots of challenges they need to accomplish and get over. They need help all across the spectrum. But when they're focused on their business day in, day out, they can't really pick their head up and say, okay, hey, Rich, help with X, Y, or Z. And so we try to, you know, basically be in communication with our founders every week or two weeks so we can ask those questions on their behalf. And so we can kind of elicit where they're having problems, where they need help, and then find ways to be helpful to those founders. Um, and then I guess from a sector perspective, we focus on what we call legacy markets. And so categories that have not yet become tech enabled. Um, examples like that for us now might include, you know, the supply chain, manufacturing, logistics, um, real estate, uh, child care, elderly care, insurance, to name a few. And what we like about those categories is that um, we're seeing the deployment of technology being um, help allowing those industries to become tech enabled. And so when we thought about the kind of uh, strategy around equal, we saw that historically venture had been about investing in the development of technology, i.e. like the building box of the internet, you know, open source computing, open source software, I should say, um, uh, you know, uh, APIs, uh, cloud computing effectively. And we thought, okay, this technology is now built. Let's go invest in the deployment of that technology into these what we call legacy markets that haven't seen it yet. And we think that can allow those industries to grow at a much faster clip. And so the, the other thing to think about there is when you're investing in the development stage again, um, you're trying to assess the technical acumen of the team. You know, can they build this new API, this open source software, this cloud computing platform? In the area of deployment, we worry less about technical know-how because um, the tech talent is quite abundant now across the country of remote, remote teams and talent all over the world. And so we care much more about you know, your market knowledge. How well do you know your industry? Because we think that's the harder thing to figure out than the technology to go build the product that you want to go build. And a lot of this investment thesis was based on, uh, you know, uh, uh, an economist, Carlotta Perez, right? So what was the association there? Yeah, so Carlotta Perez has this, you know, um, you know, fascinating book. It's a bit academic, so it's not for everybody, but, um, you know, uh, you can go find it. Technology Revolutions uh, in Financial Institutions is the book name there. But, um, you know, in that book, she basically talks through these different phases of technology and what happens in those phases. And so in that development phase, and she has actually a different name for it. I can't remember the exact name for it. But um, what happens there is that, you know, the early adopters of technology can reap a lot of the benefits there. And the folks who don't have access to it via cost or other means of accessibility really start to revolt. And you see a lot of outrage based on, you know, the exuberance of this new technology, lack of access, and, and seeing very, very few benefit from this new, you know, found technology. And then um, that leads to a lot of, you know, upheaval, which we were kind of seeing today in, in the United States across, you know, um, the you know, political spectrum as well as financial spectrum. And so we're seeing that happen today. But at some point in time, there comes like effectively this chasm where um, that technology begins to become dispersed to more and more parts of the economy, society, et cetera. And as that happens, more and more people get access to that technology and it becomes much more ubiquitous. And then you see tremendous amounts of growth to occur. And so we want to focus on that spectrum. And that's why we think, you know, a lot of Carlotta's writing is, is you know, quite influential in today's environment. 
So the, the, the first fund that you've raised is $56 million. Uh, so you know, talk about, you know, the other people involved. So there's Rick, your, uh, your partner, yeah, and sure. then you have another investor on, on the team as well, right? Yeah. So, so obviously Rick is my, my co-founder in the fund. And so the two of us are the two GPs here and we've also hired Ali Afridi on our team. And so uh, Ali actually came to um, into Rick's world quite a while ago. And so when Ali was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois studying computer science, he was, you know, working as like a, a kind of gigster proc manager for a while. And then he also was interning at General Catalyst and then um, an investor from General Catalyst who knew Rick said, Hey, Rick, I've got this great guy who's actually in your backyard at Lightbank in Chicago who could be a great intern for you, you should go reach out to him. And so Rick reached out to him and, and then, you know, uh, thought he'd be a great intern fit. And it turned out, you know, Ali was just so enamored with venture capital, he thought, you know what, I want to be an intern, I want to be a full-time employee. And so he dropped out of college to kind of become a full-time employee at LightBank with Rick. And, you know, that allowed Rick to have, you know, uh, a hands-on viewpoint of, you know, how he could be an asset to a venture fund. And he saw, you know, really quite early how he could be a great fit for any fund. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, we're now starting to thinking, okay, who can we bring on early on to help us, um, you know, increase our bandwidth, but also push us and help us think, you know, uh, in a different way. And we thought, you know, Ali would be a great fit for that. And so, you know, Ali still has not graduated college, but he's probably the smartest person on our team. <laughs> so as you're, uh, you've already made some investments. So, so, so what are some of the investments that you've already uh, made as a firm? Yes, we've made um, seven investments to date. I believe four or five of them have been announced. And so um, they range from a variety of sectors. And so in the home renovation space, there's a company called Block Renovation, um, founded by Coda Wang and Luke Sherwin based here in New York. Uh, in the insurance space, we've got Watchtower Benefits, uh, founded by uh, Ryan Sachin and, then, uh, and, and Richard Parrott, um, based in Chicago. And then we also have got um, uh, Jerry, which is in the senior living space. And so helping you find a, a you know, nursing home for your loved one, whether it be a grandma, grandpa, or mom and dad who can't live on their own anymore. And so a business that we think has um, great impact on society, but also can be quite lucrative. Now, one of the things that I read about Equal is you're also going to you know, be incubating companies too. Is that part of the, the overall plan with, of the firm? Yeah, so incubation is definitely you know, a, a feature of our model as well. And so for us, um, you know, we view incubation choice as last resort. And so we actually don't uh, focus on trying to incubate companies intentionally, but uh, occasionally find that that's actually the best path for an investment in a particular category. And so the way I think about that for us here is that, um, you know, we're doing a lot of research in advance of investing in a company. We try and evaluate markets and then try and see what the pain points are in those markets and then try and, you know, couple we think are the, you know, three or four best solutions for that particular pain point. And then we actually will landscape the market meet with as many as possible who are trying to solve those pain points. And then, you know, occasionally there won't be the right team in place for us or the product that we think should exist doesn't exist yet. And so we think this is still like a very, very valuable opportunity. Let's actually go into our network um, and try and see who the right founder set could be to go build something in that space. And that's when we kind of defer to incubation. And so we'd much rather find companies in market already building things in the categories that we care about, but occasionally we can't find it and we still believe in the opportunity. And so We'll then think about incubation as that you know investment choice is last resort for us. And so we've done it twice today uh, with companies uh, Jerry and Leap in our portfolio, and then I'm sure we'll find some one future to do as well. Very cool. Now, as you mentioned before, you're, you're hiring for the team. So, so what are you looking to hire for right now? Yes, yeah, so right now we're looking to hire a pre MBA associate, and, and for us, it's uh, 
you know, someone who's going to be excited by helping us become more educated in the markets that we want to dive deeper into. And so it'll be, you know, a role that's really focused on research and, you know, really trying to make us experts in a couple of categories that we think will be um, markets where there'll be a lot of great opportunities in the future for equal and other venture funds. And so, you know, it's going to be a lot of research, a lot of diligence, a lot of supporting us and, and where we should be spending our time. And we think it's going to be a great role for a new person because, as you've heard before, our team is very, very lean. And so lots of exposure to the GPs will be working on investments with us. Um, and, you know, you'll be effectively, you know, one of us in a, in a pretty lean team. Now, as you're evaluating investment opportunities, you know, most you know, investors look for, you know, the team, you know, the tech and the market, right? As far as the criteria, is there anything else that you would add to that outside of, you know, as you're you know, thinking of writing a check to a company? Yeah, I'd say um, one big thing for us actually combines two of those those focus areas, and that's for us is founder market fit. We try to figure out, you know, why are you and your founding team or your team members the best people to go, you know, build what you want to go build. Yeah. Um, and we think about it from two different lenses. We think founders either get it from um, having either an entire career in the space or from having, you know, a personal life experience. And so on the career side, you know, we look at a company we invested in called Watchtower Benefits. Um, you know, they basically are um, helping brokers and carriers manage the RFP process for benefit selection. And the founders there had spent their entire careers in the insurance space within benefits. And so they knew the industry in and out, they knew all the important players, and they knew the exact pain points and what to go build to solve those pain points. And so they had it in spades, that kind of founder market fit. On the flip side, we think another way to get that is from experiencing um, or just living life and experiencing a pain point that you become so in, enamored with that you want to go solve for yourself. And that actually happened in the case of Jerry. And so the founder of Jerry is a fellow named Farron Blanc. You know, unfortunately, his dad has Alzheimer's and he's from Canada. And so at some point, they have to look for, you know, a memory care facility for his father to kind of um, help with the care for him. And in Canada, you know, um, healthcare is taken care of. And so it was a very, very smooth process to find, you know, a, a place for his, his father. Um, you know, fast forward here in the United States, um, his, one of his wife's parents had a similar issue. Um, and he went through that process with them and realized, whoa, this is a very, very different experience. It's, it's very, very broken. And, you know, people are taking advantage of families in a time where there's a lot of need, a lot of trauma. And um, he felt that was, you know, not the best way to go about taking that or solving that pain point. And so he wanted to go and, and start Jerry and figure out, you know, what's the best way to solve this for, um, you know, families across the country when, you know, it's a pretty sensitive time for them. So what advice would you give to first time founders that, you know, if they're raising capital, like they get a hold of you, whether it's through a warm introduction or just, you know, meet you or something like, and you finally meet with that entrepreneur, like, what are you trying to get out of a, a, a first meeting with an entrepreneur? Yeah, for a first meeting, I'm, I'm really trying to get a sense of one, that's founder market fit that I mentioned before. So, you know, you know, why are they the best team to go about to build this product? Uh, two, you know, um, what's the specific pain point that they're trying to solve for there? And also, um, you know, why do they choose to take this path as a solution? Because there's always many, many paths to solving a particular pain point, but why do they choose this path and why is it the best way to go start the company? And, and you know, ultimately that means is, you know, at the seed stage, companies are not, you know, achieving their overarching vision out the gate they're usually kind of trying to achieve a wedge. They're trying to figure out that first initial point to kind of hit the market and figure out where they can make their, their entry point there. And so we're trying to figure out what that wedge is. And then we also want to understand, you know, what's the long-term vision for you to build a sustainable, defensible business in the space? And 
we don't think the founder has to have all the answers now, but we want to make sure that they're thinking about it and have like a vision for how to get there. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out. That way I can start the wheels turning in my head after the meeting to figure, okay, where should I spend my time doing diligence? Effectively? And I know like the process varies depending on the company and what's happening, but like what can an entrepreneur expect after that as to the point where eventually maybe a term sheet is issued? Yeah, no, I think the way we think about our process is kind of a uh, threefold. Uh, the first process I'd say is uh, the sniff test. And so it's that initial meeting or initial email will say, and we try to figure, okay, does this sound like it could be a fit for equal? Yes or no? If no, we pass politely at that point in time. If yes, we say, okay, um, let's dig in here and then move on to kind of phase two. And phase two is the diligence phase. And that usually has two parts to it. Part one is trying to figure out what are the key questions that we need to answer. Usually there's two or three things that you have to answer to get to conviction and investment. Once you pinpoint what those questions are, we then kind of work on, you know, lots of either customer calls, calls in our network, trying to figure out ways to help us answer those questions. And we also obviously engage the founders in that process to hear how they would answer those questions. And so the viewpoint there is, can we get comfortable with the risk associated? And at that point in time, we kind of go to phase three, probably hopefully the shortest phase, which is um, really figuring out what the terms are for the evaluation, check size, round size, and then that, that term sheet. But, you know, once equal initiates, or I should say, um, hands out a term sheet, our process is done. We're not doing any more homework. There's no more reference calls, research. We are committed. And so we do all work up front so that the founder knows that once a term sheet's in their hand, they can view that as effectively almost like an equal investment. And then what should the entrepreneur expect after that? It's like, okay, maybe they need to get additional investors to close out the round. And then finally mm-hmm. the process is done. And then a wire transfer is done. Like, like what happens after that? Yeah. 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 So typically, you know, given that as a seed round's gotten larger and larger, you know, the equal check is not the only check in the round. And so what we do is we help our founders syndicate that round. We've got a bunch of firms that we really enjoy partnering with. You know, we've already invested with firms like, um, NEA, ATC, Bessemer, Costa Nova, um, Graycroft, and a slew, a, slew of, a slew of other firms that we get really excited by. And so we got a lot of folks in our network that we can help um, our founders kind of fulfill those rounds. And then after the fact, you know, we, we think about, you know, um, you know, finalizing the board seats there and then, you know, helping that founder then go build their business. And so we then transition from, you know, kind of diligence to kind of portfolio assistance. Because at that point in time, we want to get to helping our companies as fast as possible because you know, times of the essence in, in a hyper competitive market where um, it's ever easier for companies to raise capital. It's ever easier for companies to find competitors. And so we want to make sure that we can help our founders get as many unfair advantages as possible. So who do you count on for advice or, or mentorship? Yeah. So, you know, actually a, a number of our LPs um, help us with, with that. And so I'd say, um, you know, from, from my previous friend, Venrock, Brian Asher has been a, a mentor of mine for, for a number of years now. Um, and um, he's been a great ally as I think about the challenges of, you know, raising a fund, managing a fund and running a fund. Um, and then I think about, you know, folks, um, you know, who helped me start my industry, my industry in the first place. So folks like Jules Maltz at IVP, who was a, you know, a great mentor for my early days in venture, helped me kind of think through how he operates. And I still use a lot of the pieces uh, in his world to kind of, uh, you know, make sure you're treating founders with respect as well uh, as, you know, investor at seed stage. And then I think about, you know, um, folks that influence our strategy too. So I'd say, you know, Roger Ehrenberg at IA Ventures um, has been a great influence throughout my career in seeing him build a firm from scratch, have great success, and, you know, trying to think through what are the things that we should avoid um, and the obstacles that, you know, unfortunately fail many venture funds. And so all these things that we're trying to think through and then um, 
I think it's all important to have like a peer group. So folks that necessarily aren't more senior to you, but folks who are going through the same challenges you're going through in a given time. And so what we have is basically, you know, this uh, emerging manager circle where we bring together, you know, fund one, the GPs who are raising or on fund one or fund two in their life cycle. And we talk about all of our challenges, try and figure out how we can help each other. Because at the end of the day, we all want to succeed together. And if we, you know, it always, I guess the saying is, you know, it takes a village. And so if we can kind of build a great cohesive village, we can all succeed together, hopefully. Now, uh, equals a new firm. So kind of like the world is your oyster, right? You just raised your first fund. So how, how are you going to define success with equal? Yeah, I think there's, there's multiple ways to define success. Obviously, there's the financial mechanism. So, you know, obviously returns are going to be very, very important to us and our investors. And that will be one driver that we won't know for many, many years from now. But um, that's going to be an important indicator for us. I think the, the, the non-financial indicator, um, you know, for us is also if we can be the firm that entrepreneur wanting to think about their idea, raise capital, has a challenge. Um, that to us is success because at the end of the day, we need to be investing in hopefully the greatest founders that we can come across. And if we can be the brand that um, basically acts as a node for founders to want to come to us, even if start a company, when they're thinking about an idea, when they want to you know, riff on ideas, that would be success for us. So that means we probably built our brand into what we want it to become in the future. And if we get that piece right, hopefully the returns will follow. Any um book or podcast recommendations that you would have out there? I mean, that they could be professional, you know, business related, or it could be just, you know, for fun. Yeah. I mean, I definitely enjoy reading. I think, you know, everyone here at equal really likes um, principles by Ray Dalio. I think he does a really good job of, of explaining how he structures his firm, but also how his structure applies to his personal life as well. And so it's a great book for thinking through how to you know, manage a business, but also how to manage one's life. Um, and then I think, you know, you have to always make time to kind of, um, you know, read for fun too. And so a book I just finished was, um, the smartest kids in the world. I actually forget the author's name, unfortunately, but it, it talks about how, um, education differs across different countries across the, the globe and, you know, what's the unifying factor for success. And, and, you know, I don't want to ruin the book for folks who might listen to the podcast, but, um, it really comes down to, um, the respect given to teachers. Um, and, and there's varying levels of respect given the profession of teaching across the world. And that has had great impacts on the success of, you know, critical thinking rather than just, you know, rock memorization. And so I, it's a really quick read, but I really, really enjoyed it. Sounds fascinating. Yes. There's a lot of room for improvement with uh, education and, and how things are done, but that's a whole different topic. <laughs> <laughs> so. For sure. And, and as you might imagine, the, the book um, is very, very critical of the U.S. education system. And so um, I hope you enjoy reading it. Okay. I'll have to check it out. How about outside of work? What do you like to do for fun? You know, outside of work for me, um, really enjoy spending as much time as possible with my family. You know, it's, um, as you, you, you know, that, you know, people get older and, and they may, um, uh, you know, slow down with age. And so it's really important to find time for grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews. And so as much time as possible I can do um, with that is, is fantastic for me. And so, you know, um, this past weekend I was visiting my mom and grandma who now live in Florida. You know, last night uh, we had dinner with my wife's aunt and we're doing the same thing, I think, next weekend. And so um, that, that's super important to us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm in that sandwich generation where I have two teenage girls at home and I have a, a dad who's down in Florida, but he's, you know, he's getting close to 80 and you can definitely tell he's, 
he's, he's slowing down. So he try to spend as much time getting down there as possible to, uh, to hang out with him. Um, well, Rich, thanks for taking the time to walk us through, you know, all the great work you're doing, uh, not only just with equal, but obviously, you know, raising more awareness of the diversity issues that, uh, tech and obviously the venture capital industry are facing and the actions that you're taking. Uh, you know, if someone is interested in uh, getting a hold of you, maybe they're an entrepreneur that has an idea or they're interested in the uh, pre-MBA associate role. How do, how do people get a hold of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so my email is just kirby at equal.vc. So K-E-R-B-Y at equal.vc. And then on Twitter, I'm just at Kirby, so at K-E-R-B-Y. And so pretty accessible. You know, we, we try and have, you know, um, open door policy for folks to reach out to us. Um, uh, we don't need a warm intro. Obviously, that's always great. But, you know, if you think um, you can go on our website and, and kind of think that you're a fit for our thesis, we're always happy to have that conversation. Perfect. Well, Rich, thanks so much for your time. Keith, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.